answering the difficult and critical questions youth may face that relate to Mormon culture and teachings. This is the Rise Up Podcast, produced by Fair Mormon. Every now and then you hear the story of an individual that's able to demonstrate faith and endurance that is as uncommon as is their life experience. That is the case with Misty Nielsen. Her story shows the importance of family, just perhaps not in the way you may think. Misty Nielsen is a a unique story amongst the Latter-day Saint community. She's uh, 34 years old, a mother of five. She's been married for 16 years. She's also a convert to the church and the only member of her family. She went through a lot of trials in her life, and and as many do, they continue to experience trials throughout their life. She grew up in an abusive home, was abandoned by both her biological parents, only to be adopted into a home that was also abusive. Her life story continued when she joined the church when she was 17 years old, and she used the last bit of her money to move out from Maine. She's now married, uh, and we are going to learn a great deal about her life story and the trials that she has faced, um, which we've only given just a brief snippet of, of course, in this bio, but I want to welcome you, uh, Misty. Thank you for coming in, and and we're excited to learn a little bit about your story. Thank you. Um, So thank you for being here. So let's let's actually jump back kind of to the beginning. Um, In in your story, of course, the reason we're sharing it is not to... um, of course, depress people or or make anybody feel uh, small in the trials that they may may face. But hopefully in the experience here, we're going to see how you were able to overcome the trials that, that you faced in your life. Now, so starting out, you you grew up in an abusive home. Yes. If you feel comfortable, and by the way, stop me if there's anything that, that we go too deep onto, but uh, you grew up in an abusive home. What kind of abuse and, and how long did that go? Well, my um, biological parents were married very young, um, and my mother um, had somewhat um, severe mental illness, but mm. diagnosed, and especially for um, you know the time she grew up in, there wasn't a lot of medical uh, help yet for her. Um, so they were married uh, relatively inexperienced, and um, the kids came pretty fast. Um, my sister is 18 months older than me and my mm. brother 13 months younger. Okay. Um, so we um, initially started off with my parents and... And this was in Maine? Nope, not in Maine. Oh, okay. And I'm a little fuzzy exactly where we live, but it was um, in California, Alaska, also Ohio and Virginia at times. Wow, you guys were nomads. You yes. went all over the yeah, place. My father was in the military, so, okay. so he raised us with my mother off and on um, until we were about the age of two and three, and he left my mother my uh, brother and sister and I in Anchorage, Alaska. And it was there that my mother was forced to prostitute. Mm. Um, to help take care of us. And we were exposed to a lot of things during um, that time. Sure. Eventually, my um, 
grandparents found out that we were in that position and took my mother in and us kids in. And shortly after that, my father showed up back in the picture and he uh, wanted to try parenting again. So he took us um, without my mother back to Ohio to live with his parents. And um, it was very uh, a very humble situation to live in. I believe it was a trailer um, with uh, little resources. Um, he still in the military at this point. Yes, I believe okay. so. And he was not um, cut out to be a father, and started dating a woman that didn't want children. So he uh, decided to give us away to his best friend so that he could, uh, yeah, go with his girlfriend. And it's unknown if he knew the circumstances he was leaving us in, but... um, This is the foster family. Well, not even a foster family. He just gave us away to uh, his friend. Wow. Um, Just dumped us off there, and uh, that man was actually a pedophile. Mm. So it was... During that time, I can remember being very young um, and being very sensitive. I didn't know what it was, but the promptings of the spirit. And um, we were molested there um, and starved there. Often, though, when things could have taken a much worse uh, turn for abuse, we would be spared because I remember um, hearing a voice give me direction and there one specific time this man wanted me to take my clothes off and get into bed with him and we he had a little dog that always attacked me I was petrified of this little dog (laughs) and the little dog was in the doorway yeah and um, that voice that I've heard a very few times over my life said, tell him no and walk past the dog and you won't be harmed. And I remember doing that when I was three. Um, Wow. So this is all before you're three. Yes. Yes. Yep. Um, We were three or I was three living in this home. But you remember that. Yes. Yes. Uh, It is common with young children. Either we... um, Well, we tend to remember very significant parts of our very early childhood. So it's either we remember some very fond memories or we remember... Pretty tragic. Yes. Yep. And we stayed there for a while longer. And then my grandparents, um, again, found out what had happened. And they came um, to get us from this home and we were very relieved to leave. Sure. Yet we knew um, that we would be somewhere safe again. And my grandparents and my mother came and picked us up and took us back um, to Virginia. My mother helped raise us for a short amount of time. And then when we were, my brother, sister, and I, I think our ages were about four, five, and six, um, my mother one night uh, just disappeared so she she left us and 
Is this with your grandparents still yes. around? Yep. So you did have someone. Yep. We had my grandparents and um, Betsy left us and um, that was the last we ever um, had any contact with her. Betsy, this is your birth mother. Yes, her name is Betsy. Okay. Yep. You refer to her a very detached sense. She's not mom. No, she's I. Sh- nope, she isn't my mother. Okay. She wasn't. Um, unfortunately, I've remained slightly motherless. <laughs> okay. <laughs> throughout my life, no, she. Um, I don't know her as my mother. She didn't nurture me as her child. So yes, there is some detachment there for sure. Um, so. Uh, Betsy left, and then my grandparents, about a year later, um, had been advised that we we be adopted out to have somewhat of a fresh start. Even away from them? Yes, that is a tricky uh, part of our relationship because I think to my brother and sister and I, we haven't ever been given a good enough reason why they just didn't keep us. Mm. Um, there had been some talk to separate us, um, and we each go to um, one of their children, but um, a psychiatrist highly uh, recommended that we weren't to be separated because we had survived together. Yeah, you're your only a, support system. Yes, yes. Um, if, and just basic necessity, having to steal to find food. We uh, took abuse for each other. We survived together. So they said under no circumstances that we should be separated. So about how old are you in this this adoption? Uh, about five, six, and seven. So I was the middle, so six. Okay. Um, they went through the Methodist church to find us um, what they thought would be a good home for us. And initially, um, things started out well. It was a very hard transition because we grieved intensely for our grandparents because that was the only safe home we knew. It was the safest to that point, for yes. sure. yep. And so probably about a year in uh, with my adoptive parents, they— excuse me, adoptive mother, Paula, was very cold and un, unavailable. She just didn't have the tools or the love to take care of children that were exceptionally needy. We needed a lot to feel safe and to feel loved, and she was not willing um, to give that to us. Mm. We, this wasn't a foster situation or it was a straight adoption? Uh, yep, pretty. I think there was possibly a grace period, for Mm. lack of better words, um, where things went fine and then things were finalized. And it was shortly after that that um, things went downhill Mm. very quickly. And it's an odd situation because they did come out to visit um, one time after I had my first child. And and we asked them, um, why didn't they just turn us back over to my uh, grandparents and they they just said they weren't quitters so they stuck it out is I that guess... a good quality in this case I mean it, it seems like it's uh, it's hard to know in the moment no because they they weren't they should have been adult enough to realize that they couldn't give us what we needed and couldn't and maybe didn't want want to it was a very hostile environment. We were kept locked up in our rooms. We weren't allowed to play outside. Mm. Um, we weren't allowed to eat the same food that they had. 
Um, so they ate fresh fruits and fresh vegetables, meat. We we got none of that. Very mm. bland, basic diet. They used us to do a lot of work, um, remodeling and refurbishing homes. Um, wow. Yeah, we, we didn't have any freedom at all. It was really a horrible time in our lives. And we didn't really know how to reach out and get help. I think families thought that our life circumstance was a little bit odd, but I don't think anybody really suspected that it was as abusive as it was. So we felt very isolated and very alone. Sure. When I was 16, they had kind of devised a plan to start getting us out of the home quickly. So I was supposed to go um, to an alternative education facility, and I did. Um, and the deal was that um, I would graduate early, and then I would go into the Marine Corps. My um, <laughs> uh, adoptive father, Fred, was career Marine. Okay. And um, he thought that that would be a great plan because – uh, with parental consent, you can go into the military before you're legally an adult okay. if your parents sign you off. Wow. Yep. So that was the plan, and I was pretty cool with it because I just wanted out. Sure. So um, I moved out to the community school in Maine and began working during the day so that I could take classes at night. And this was really one of the first um, – experiences of freedom that I had. So I started to develop in more into my own self and realized, you know, that I had likes of my own, that I, you know, I didn't have anybody dictating uh, to me what I could and couldn't do. And I realized I did not want to go into the Marine Corps. And that was probably... Um, one of the scariest transitions because I had to confront my parents sure, um, and tell them that I wasn't going to do what they wanted. Um, it was a very intense meeting that I had with the mediator and um, my parents, and um, they screamed a lot and were very angry. And um, we finally uh, came to the decision that I would be emancipated. So technically, that means you go to court and you yeah. divorce your parents. Yeah, it's a, it's a legal term. Yes. Yeah. So um, I was appointed an attorney, and I had, by that point, graduated high school when I was um, almost turning 17, and I had a job, and I had my own place, and um, we went to court, and they stood up and said, this is a great plan, and signed a paper. They didn't fight it at all. No, it was actually slightly humiliating because the child part, and I think people that are children, especially that have been abused, you always, always hope that there is going to be a parent that will fight for you and love you. And when they um, stood up and just said, let's get her out of here, I was a little bit heartbroken and very embarrassed because there were many, you know, people in the room. Sure. So then I was on my merry way to freedom. So I lived. Um, this is in Maine. Yes, in Maine. And still. you were sixteen. Yeah, I think I think I got emancipated a few days after my seventeenth birthday. Okay. 
So that would have been in 98, okay. if I'm remembering correctly. And I lived um, in this little attic apartment in Maine. And it was a pretty hefty transition because I had grown up always with my brother and sister. And all of a sudden, I was alone. Yeah. So... Um, That's scary. But was it also kind of welcome at the same time? Well... At this point? It, it took me a little while... For a while, I was very lonely, mm-hmm. and I I grieved that connection with my siblings because I missed them, and I was lonely. But once I kind of came into my own, I really enjoyed the freedom, and I learned to be okay with who I was. Um, that seems like a really huge mountain to climb yes. on, on its own, yep. considering those, this long history that you've had, yep. where it just seemed like almost like nobody could... Nobody seemed to care for you. Yeah. But all of a sudden, you were able to come to that realization on your own. What what helped you kind of get to that place? Well, I think, well, it was a lot of baby steps. Initially, I made the wrong ones. So I um, started doing a lot of drugs and drinking to numb a lot of what I was feeling because it was the first time in my life I was in a situation that I really could evaluate what had happened to me my first 17 years and really started to realize how wrong it was. When I was growing up, I didn't have a lot of reference to what like uh, average family would be like. Mm-hmm. And as I got to know people more outside of my home, I really realized I had come through some pretty intense circumstances. So for a while, I numbed that because it was too big for me. Kind of a survival defense mechanism. Yep, yep. Um, It was around that time I had a friend named Ezra, and I had always been open to religion. We were raised in a religious home, as ironic as that is. We went to church every Sunday um, and had religion in our lives. It was confusing to me because we knew how unchristian my parents were. So we had a, or I had a hard time understanding God, except that I had always had a sense of that there was somebody bigger than me kind of taking care of me, if you will, my entire life. Sure. Um, And I acknowledged that there was something bigger out there. Um, So he told me he was going on a mission um, and was going to be a missionary. And I thought, okay, cool. We have those in my church. So he invited me um, to go to his going away party, he called it, and it ended up being his farewell. In sacrament meeting. Yes. Okay. Yep. And so at that point, he said, you know, Misty, I think you're really ready to meet with the elders, so let's set that up. And I was open to that, but I didn't understand who the elders were. So they set up a meeting, and then two handsome <laughs> young men <laughs> showed up <laughs> to teach me the gospel. Yeah. So... um that was a really magical time of my life because they weren't kids, but we were kind of, uh, they were teaching me close to my same, you know, they're close yeah. to my same age. So we were able to become friends. Everything I learned during the discussions, I, it was right to me. Um, the questions or the spaces that were um, missing 
in my life that I had been taught, you know, about religious things, um, I appreciated the fullness of the gospel that I was being taught. So I got um, baptized very quickly. This and, is when you were 17. Yes. So um, it was just in a matter of two or three weeks, I think. Okay. And then um, I got baptized and then had the new member discussions very quickly. And then I scraped together the last of the money that I had and I bought a plane ticket and came out to live um, with one of the missionary families. Okay. So um, this young man had uh, taught me, um, and I was able to go live with his family for three or four months in Idaho, and then had gathered up enough money then at that point to move to Provo. Okay. So... Um, this is a huge life shift. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. It all, it almost seems like we're kind of breezing over things, but but it, in essence, you you you. It went were, from one extreme to the next very, very quickly. Yes, yes, because I and it was so interesting because right at the time that I had um, been set up with the missionaries. I remember praying and thinking to myself, I don't want to be this type of person. I am better than what I am doing and the mistakes that I'm making, and I either need to be resolute in my decision to be that type of person, or I need to find truth and become the type of person that I feel like I was meant to become. So when that when the gospel basically fell into my lap, I grabbed onto that and went with it. Yeah. So, and I knew if I stayed in Maine that there wouldn't be much of a chance for me because the population of LDS people is very small and I needed to get away from the people that I, um, that I was associating with that were doing things that were not good for me. Gotcha. So you... You swing a pretty far pendulum and go all the way to Provo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I was happy to get away from my my parents and to just start over brand new. I thought it was a really great opportunity to just become somebody new and better than what I was doing. And you were still in touch with your siblings at this time. Yes. Um, what did they think of you becoming a member of the church? Well... Or did that even come up? They... I think at that point we were all just kind of doing what we wanted. Um, I think they may have questioned it a little bit, um, but because I had so few family members and was pretty much estranged from anybody else uh, that I was related to, nobody got in my way. Now, since then, they may think it's slightly odd, but... um, Are you still in touch with them? Well, uh, yeah, yes and no. My brother and I um, had um, have had a falling out mm. um, that hasn't been able to be repaired. And I am in touch with my sister kind of in a way that, that I've been able to establish as safe. She isn't um, extremely well herself and has a lot of dysfunction in her life. So I have to distance myself from that um, to remain healthy myself. That's fair. So I do have a biological aunt um, that I'm close to and then um, my biological grandparents. And then that outside of the family I've created for myself, that's it. That's it. (laughs) Yep. 
So I, I, I would assume that at some point along the line, the missionaries and your experience in the church, they talk about forever families, eternal families and being married together for eternity. In your situation, how well did that doctrine, how that teaching resonate or not resonate with you? I really liked the idea of that. I still don't know exactly how that applies in my life as far as my own parents. Um, both of my biological parents are deceased now. Oh, okay. Um, so I think a lot of those things get fixed after this life. And I'm okay with that because it's bigger than I can work out, I think. Um, well, yeah, you, you don't know who you want to be sealed to, right? Yes. You're, not your adoptive parents, yep. not your biological ones. It doesn't seem like... I have no idea. Yeah. So, but as far as um, my own family, my husband and the kids and I, I'm grateful that um, we have been sealed together. Yeah. Um, and that is now my forever family. Yeah. All right, so you 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 move out to Provo. Yep. You're at this point in your life story. You're not married yet. Nope, that happened soon after. <laughs> <laughs> okay, as it does with many people, Provo has that kind of magic, right? Yep. <laughs> so so you guys you guys then meet. That's your next life like event. Yes. So Andrew and I worked um, at a call center in Orem, and I don't believe we were on the same team, but he came walking down my row. And he caught my eye, and I thought to myself, I need to snag him. <laughs> so I pulled the chair out next to me, and I said, why don't you just sit here? Very bold. Nice. <laughs> so we had a whirlwind romance, and six weeks later, we decided we would get married, and the next day we did. <laughs> wow. Boy, you don't mess around with nope. your conversion, getting married, any of that. Yours is very quick. <laughs> yep. So um, his family was a little shocked. Um, and at that point, I had not been a member long enough to go to the temple. So we got married civilly just in his um, parents' home. Mm -hmm. um, and then a year later went and got sealed in the temple. Provo Temple. Yep. Yep. Excellent. <laughs> so... So now you're in this kind of new situation in life where you're creating now your own family. Yes. And I would imagine that you're carrying with you a ton of baggage yes. with your own family situation. First off, when did you introduce uh, Andrew to your life story? And how then did that formulate your guys', I guess, your family plan moving forward? Well, I think... We talked about my life history pretty early on, and Andrew um, had a set of his own trials that were coming into the marriage because um, he has some uh, pretty serious mental illness. So as far as his trials and my trials, we kind of lined up equally, but they were very different. So he was extremely willing to help me get things under control in my own life and vice versa. So we have accepted each other wholly with all of our baggage that we brought. And I think that that is why our marriage worked because I don't think somebody else that hadn't suffered some of their own pretty extensively, I don't think they would have been able to understand or tolerate the learning curve that I needed. 
So you you kind of felt a kinship and infirmity. Yep. And in, in, in struggling with those things. Yes, he was very willing to be forgiving of my um, mess ups, and there were many uh, <laughs> early on because this really was the first real and loving, committed relationship that I had ever sure. been in. And when you don't learn love and commitment as a small child, you have to relearn that as an adult. And it is a huge, it's a huge trial and road. Um, it's a long road to learn, relearn human connection like that. So thankfully he was willing um, to help me learn that and I was able to show him love and acceptance in return too. So you guys what what year were you married then? Just so we have a good time. Ninety eight. Ninety eight. Yes. And you guys now have five children. Yes. So since then you've had a you've had these children and again I'm sure some of your childhood is informing how you are now as a parent. Yes, it's been an interesting experience uh, to become a mother because I wasn't shown really what a true mother should be like. So I relied heavily on Andrew's mother and sisters as examples, and it took a huge amount of internal dialogue with myself to always be challenging my initial reactions or thoughts. I read a lot of books. I studied the scriptures a lot, it, but it was a huge learning process. Sure. And I do believe the children that have come to our family um, were well-equipped to handle me <laughs> as their mother. <laughs> so um, we um, have five kids, and we have um, our fourth is in heaven, so that was um, well. That's where I was going to go next. You yep. you have a you had a, a son named Isaac. Yes. And um, this this came around how many years ago? About six. Okay, so six years ago, you you had given birth to Isaac, but died shortly yes. thereafter. We um, I f- fell pregnant um, with Isaac, and we were elated. I have had some infertility issues in the past, so he came along very easily, unexpectedly. So we were really excited um, that he was coming. And um, I went into my ultrasound at about 23 weeks along, um, and I had gone alone because I thought, oh, you know, we've done this so many times, this, you know, nothing different today. Um, and during that ultrasound, the um, the tech who had actually scanned all of my other babies just got a very serious look on his face, and I started to feel very anxious, like something wasn't right. Mm. And he he looked around the baby and kind of showed me his feet and um, his hands, and he just kind of blurted out. He said, I don't exactly know how to tell you this, but your baby is going to die. Wow. They knew that just from an ultrasound. Yes. Isaac um, was diagnosed with anencephaly, and that is where the majority of um, the brain and his skull did not form. Mm. So um, babies die a lot of times during um, pregnancy or delivery, and usually die within a couple hours um, after, and some have lived longer, but it's not um, very common. 
And and what was the situation with Isaac? Um, well, we were completely shocked and um, and just utterly devastated. And we had to tell the children what had happened. And there was a lot of um, appointments the next day or two. Uh, and they confirmed his diagnosis. Uh, it's so hard to tell the severity of, um, of his condition until a baby is born. Um, church's standards are, um, that if a baby is not going to live, um, that the baby can come, you can be induced and the baby can come early. Mm -hmm. Uh, we decided, um, I just couldn't decide to stop his heartbeat because he was alive and well, and he moved, um, more than any of my other children did in utero. And I just, I knew he was alive and I didn't feel equipped or able um, to make the decision to end his life. So we, um, we carried to term, and it was an extremely hard pregnancy. You know, to the outside world, when your belly is getting bigger, people think that there's a healthy baby coming. So it was very taxing and heartbreaking um, to continue to continue on, um, and the children were heartbroken. <laughs> so we found ourselves in a situation that we had to manage their grief and our own, and we didn't know what was coming. And Isaac was born living. Um, he lived 70 minutes, and Andrew was able to bless him. And I held him while he passed away, and it was uh, a very faith-affirming experience because we really could feel without a doubt that, uh, that life continued after. And we witnessed that in a very intimate way. Um, the hardest part for me came afterwards. And that is when one of the biggest um, trials of my faith began because I was very angry that I had, I felt, given up so much during my childhood that I couldn't imagine that after I had worked so hard to be well and to have my own family, that Heavenly Father would take from me something that I valued more than anything else in the world. That's a lot of, that's a lot of conflict. Yes, it was. And, and so you, you stopped going to church for some time. Yeah. We, um, after the baby died, I just, I really couldn't get it together spiritually. It was really a victory for me to get out of bed and to tend the kids and to, help them grieve in the way that they were grieving. I grieved privately as much as I could when the children weren't around because I didn't want to burden them. But it was a long time before I felt like I got my feet back underneath me because I was sorrowing.
very intensely. Um, and after Isaac died, we tried for another baby, and I had three miscarriages mm. um, after him. Finally, um, we got pregnant with our youngest, who is his name is Avery, and we still weren't going to church at that point, but I had promised Heavenly Father, and this is the bartering stage of grief. <laughs> grief, yeah. I said, if you give me this blessing that I want so much, I promise that I I will get my family um, back to church. And Avery came and was born beautiful and healthy, and it took me probably about a year after that uh, to get back to church. Um, after he was about four or five months old, I had been prompted very strongly to start a business, and it was such an odd feeling. Shortly after Isaac was born, I had made a sign for him in our home, and at that point, I thought it would be really neat to offer that to other women in my situation. But I was really um, struggling, grieving at that point, and so I just forgot about it. Mm. A couple years later, I was driving to pick up Andrew from work, and I just felt that inspiration come to me very specifically to purchase the supplies that I needed and that I should start this business endeavor. I And I followed through and, and bought all that I needed and had anxiety probably for five or six weeks until everything came in. That was, I think, about three years ago, and I launched um, my business through uh, Facebook, and we've reached over 5,000 likes now, and I've probably taken care of about 3,500 grieving mothers. So what do you, let's, let's, let's talk about that for a second. Okay. So what, you're making essentially little memorials, Yeah, it's Yeah, it's really morphed into an incredible business. It initially just started, they're called Baby Boards, and basically, a mom comes to me and says, I want a plaque this color with my baby's name, and this is what I want it to say. And this is all little memorials of their children that yes, have passed on. Yes, all um, infant loss and miscarriage. Um, and there is a tremendous need for that. And I think a lot of women, if not the majority, really feel like after they've lost a child that that child is still theirs and exists. They may not know exactly where, but they know that their baby is a part of their family. They're connected. Yes, and they want to remember that baby. And that is an intense feeling I had after Isaac died is I, to this day, feel him in and out of our home and our lives. And we have several things up around the home. So his place in our family is secured and remembered. Okay. So my business is an extension extension of that. Um, and we started a um, Facebook support group. Kind of all the things that I felt like I really would have ben- benefited from, but I didn't have um, okay. when I was grieving for my own baby. So that is my gift of his life is to pass to pass that on to other moms that are in need and really just try to be there for other women in a way that I needed but I didn't have. Okay. Okay. So 
let's then kind of transition to how you ended up coming back into activity yep. in the church. So that was a huge, I think the bulk of my healing journey took place after Avery was born um, and my arms weren't empty anymore. And um, the business, through the business, I was able to continue to heal as I helped other women too. Um, and it, uh, gosh, what is it, 2015 now? Mm-hmm. Okay, so... 2013, January 1st. Okay. Yes. So I set the kids down and I just said, we're going to do it. So um, because of Andrew's um, schizophrenia, he is not able to attend church because that is a trigger for him. Um, And with medications, that part of his life stays very um, under control, and he's awesome and provides for our family, but church is not an option. So I sat down the kids, and we knew and decided that we were doing this just us, you know, that Dad couldn't um, participate. But we um, had his support and just decided that we would jump in the whole way before I kind of tinkered with, oh, well, we'll go to sacrament meeting once a month or, you know, every other Sunday we'll make a go of it. And that never translated into anything permanent. So I had just felt very strongly that the, the time had come that Heavenly Father had understood my path that had, um, that I had taken, but now that I had made enough progress that it was time to get back in the game. So um, we went, and every Sunday pretty much since then, all three hours we go. Okay. So it was a pretty rough transition, um, and the kids dragged their feet a bit and protested, but um, kids it's— Kids do that. Yes. <laughs> so it's, it's become a good, solid part of our lives again. So what if—of if, course, this is going to be a looking back kind of perspective. Mm-hmm. But looking back around the time of Isaac's death to where you are now, mm-hmm. what role did the church play in your life, what, if any, as far as coming back? Or was this something that you came to on your own? Well— I think it's a misconception within the neighborhood or the ward that our or my testimony died when the baby died. Mm. And it wasn't that at all. We knew where he was. We knew the gospel was true. We lived our lives um, based on gospel standards as much as possible. Um, We weren't struggling with the word of wisdom or anything like that, but I... Um, emotionally, I, I don't know that I've ever felt that broken. I think the best that I can explain it is that trial was the one that broke the camel's back. So all that I had grieved prior to losing Isaac, um, and how I grieved for him after all came together and I just, um... I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to see pregnant bellies, and I didn't want to see babies, and I didn't want to talk to women that said they'd sneeze and got pregnant, or if my husband looks at me, I'm pregnant. I just—nobody at church had had a loss like mine, and they couldn't understand the magnitude of 
of what that meant to us and the reminder of going somewhere in a very concentrated, you know. That's Provo. Yes. There you can't <laughs> escape it. And yeah. at church it was it was really rough. Um, and it took me a long time until I felt like I was strong enough that I that I could do it. You were stronger than that thing that yes. that kept you away, yep. that fear that you may have had. Yep, and it still hurts. I I think it's a loss, um, and the grieving a mother has for their child doesn't ever, ever go away. I think we learn to live with it. Um, I think we learn to handle the reminders um, a little bit better, but it, I think, to always be around a newborn, somebody else's baby or a baby blessing or any of those types of reminders or pregnant bellies, it always it always stings a little bit. Sure, they're triggers of their own. Yep, yep. So it took a while until I felt like I could go to church and be strong enough for my kids and for myself that we could kind of get, get through. And um, I don't know. If we didn't, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but we could go and not really stick out. Okay. Like, you know, like I wasn't crying or the kids weren't crying or, you know, um, when you grieve early on, uh, you can't control that, the crying or the breakdowns. And so I found, you know, I found as time passed, I was able to control that a little bit better. Yeah. So, so it's, it's interesting to hear you kind of use the words, and I don't know if this is subconscious that you're using the, these certain <laughs> words, but when you talk about you're coming back to church, uh-huh. you, you were talking about wanting to fit back in uh-huh. a, as being normal, if you will. <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to be normal. But, yeah, but, but there is, what is normal? You know, at, at, some, at some point, we, we don't often know other people's experiences and what brought them to where they're at. Yep. True. But your assumption still going into it was nobody knows my grief. Yep. Nobody knows my sorrows, my troubles. And you didn't did you didn't feel this or you maybe you just haven't articulated it this way, but it seems like you didn't feel that church was a place for you to find that peace. Well, that you had to be peace at peace before coming? No, I yeah, I guess I didn't articulate that quite right. I don't I don't know that I felt I needed to be completely at peace because I still am not today over a lot of different things, but I just felt like I hadn't reached a point um, where I wanted to go back or felt like I could go back. Okay. Um, I think because of all the life experience that I've had, uh, and and not that other people haven't experienced similar or I really believe everybody struggles to the extent that they're supposed to. But even before the baby died, it's always been tricky to find people that kind of under understand me and some of my struggles. So... Um, I just felt too broken to be back in that atmosphere. And I think we all have to have a level of functioning um, 
to be able to be in that environment with lots of different people. Why do you think that? Why do you think that people can't be broken at church when when we've we've got we've got comments and quotes from general authorities talking about how people we're all we're all broken in some way. Yes. And 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 church is the place to go to find that yes. healing and and that that sociality. So what 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 is it then that that still was there that was present that makes you think that you needed to be fixed enough? Well, I think probably previous experiences that I had had um probably um, Even before you were a member, or this is just within your church? Probably experience? since I had been a member. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of a tactful, tactful way to put it, but I, I think a lot of times when I went to church, I felt misunderstood or judged. Our family situation is extremely unique, and whether we like it or not, Sometimes if you're a lot different, it's hard to interact or people don't know how to interact with you. A lot of people did not understand my family situation or Andrew's um, health problems. And there had been some well-meaning attempts to kind of fix or help our family that um, weren't appreciated or necessary. So... I don't know, it just, it was hard to go somewhere that I didn't maybe feel accepted. And that may have been my own perception and been incorrect. But, but I, it's how you felt. Yes, and I just, I wasn't ready to deal with that. So are you now, do you feel like you're in a place to approach people that, might be where you were at? Yes, and I think what I finally decided when I came back with the kids is that I wasn't going to care anymore what people really thought of my family. So instead of hiding information because I felt like that was protecting Andrew or the kids, I just decided to be straight up. Put it, put it on the table. Yep, yep, because we had gotten to the point that we were going back to church because that's what my family needed. It wasn't that we needed to go to church to make friends or to socialize. We were going because we needed what was being taught. So <coughs> it was <coughs> a hard transition, and I'll admit I was pretty standoffish and, and you know— <laughs> I don't know what the right word is. I just, I was cautious in my relationships with people at church. And as I let go of that and I decided that I would share about myself and my family and that it really didn't matter if somebody understood or didn't understand, it was a really freeing experience for me and for the kids and, you know, we have made some great friends, um, and our testimonies have really grown. And I have found the more that I have shared truly about myself that other people have really appreciated that. So it, it was almost a choice to be openly and honest yes. with your experience, whereas before yep. you felt like you needed to yes, almost lie about it, right? <laughs> well, because you just – you. You just don't ever know how somebody is going to react. And there are people that don't get it. Or it's a little scary to hear about. Absolutely. So 
and I've had my fair share of that, but I think as I share about my authentic self, people gravitate to that, you know, because they like who I am. I don't have to be like them to fit in. Yeah. And it was a member of your ward that actually suggested you as a guest yes. to me uh, <laughs> because he was he was impressed by your story and what that meant in, in his not only his own faith, but what he thought other people could get from seeing and hearing about your experience. So with that all being said, and I kind of want to wrap it up a little bit sure. and then kind of put a, I don't want to put a bow on it. I don't know <laughs> what the right word is, but you, you're, you're still experiencing struggles and trials. I mean, you talk about this ongoing battle with schizophrenia yep. and, and I'm sure as your children grow up and, and experience, uh, you know, the youth experience of the church that they are going to have challenges that will be placed in your lap. Yes, absolutely. And, and so there's, there's always going to be something that's going, to, that's going to be surrounding your life. With that all being said, how now do you move forward? How have you decided to view your church membership and your church activity and how, what role that plays in providing you strength amidst your trials? I think as I have struggled throughout my life and been blessed to know that Heavenly Father has been keenly aware of me, I have learned to accept that He has my best interest in mind always, that even if I'm stubborn and don't understand and if I'm angry because my life hasn't unfolded the way that I thought that it should. I think the experience that I have had have given has given me a very intense and real knowledge of who Christ is, um, that he's my friend and that he's my brother, and that when I haven't been able um, to get through on my own, that he has carried me in a very intimate and loving loving way. And I think when Isaac um, was born and died, it shook my faith. And I think as I've grown um, from that and learned from that, um, I learned that Isaac wasn't done to me, that his life um, it wasn't was, a punishment. No, that it was given to me, that his life and all that I have learned from him, um, the intense and very real knowledge that he exists around us all of the time and that he's ours forever, it's given me the footing that I need to get through anything else that comes along. If we, we were able to get through that, and that was the hardest time of my life, it's me realizing that we can choose to have faith to believe that everything that is happening in our life is for growth and for knowledge um, and to learn to be better, better people. And I think um, if I can hold on to that and continue to hold on to that, that it will get us through whatever comes our way. Yeah, that's exciting. So so I've, I've been debating in my own head on the way over from my house here and 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 in thinking about this interview, what what could I title <laughs> this interview? But I'm gonna I'm gonna 
kind of chicken my way out, and I'm going to ask you to give me a title. <laughs> oh, gosh. How would you, if you were to write a book even about this ex- your life experience so far, how, what would you title it? Oh, how gosh. would you even describe it? Oh, wow, that's a big question. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe something along the lines of em- embracing spiritual freedom through faith. Okay. That's the best I got. See, when I was coming over, I thought <laughs> if there's anybody that would personify acquainted with grief. Oh, I like that too. That 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 your life story seems to be one thing after another where it's grief over and over again. Yep. And and there's there's different levels of mourning. Yes. And and so that also brings me back to this idea of our baptismal covenant to mourn with those that mourn. Yep. Um, do you feel that that's your calling now in a, in a certain way, like an unofficial calling is to be able to mourn with those that mourn more so than you would have otherwise? I, yes, because I think if you have lost in lots of different aspects of your life, uh, you're able uh, to empathize and sympathize with other people that are are hurting. And I think sometimes we don't really see outside of ourselves or we don't realize that everybody is carrying a burden. And we all act or react in in different ways based on what we're going through um, in our lives. And I think because I have really been in need of grace and understanding that it's very easy for me to extend that to somebody else. Yeah. So, which in and of itself is kind of a is is a way of looking at the atonement, right? There, yes. In your case, I don't know very many people that could empathize with your situation <laughs> fully because how many people have gone through what you've had to go through? Mm-hmm. But yet we have that example of the Savior, who, yes, who can perfectly empathize with what you've experienced. Yep. And I think we forget that we really. We really, really need him. I need to be understood in those intimate ways because I know that I have acted or reacted or made choices based on things that I have suffered that I didn't have control over. And I need somebody to bridge that gap and to make my experience or my forgiveness whole because we're just doing the best that we can. Yeah, I mean, you have... You you have the atonement in both sides. It's a mat- not just about being forgiven for something in your life, but there's a lot of people who've done things to you. Who yep, and, and the atonement makes you whole in that as well. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you and sharing. I know this is kind of like a painful thing in a way, right? It's- <laughs> well, I'm a crybaby, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I appreciate you being willing to approach these difficult issues and, and, and the trials that you've overcome in, in a matter of faithfulness. You've, you've come out the other side, if you will, but you continue to do that. You continue to endure. So thank you for that example and for sharing your testimony and your story with us. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Rise Up. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes under the name Mormon Faircast. Questions or comments can be posted at blog.fairmormon.org in conjunction with this episode. 
Tune in each week for another episode of Rise Up. Thank you for listening.